Moving Iron Podcast number 195. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Dawson Tire and Wheel, your premier ag tire and wheel provider in North America, helping people grow. Tractor Zoom delivering insights and dry shot boots to official work boot of the Moving Iron Podcast. So, this episode is a little bit different than what we've done in the past. This is actually a recorded interview that Sean Hackett did with a a company called Real Vision, and he did kind of this in depth dive into what he sees happening in 20 and 21 as far as. I'm sorry, as in 21 and 22, as he sees things unfold as this La Nina and solar grand solar cycle come together and what the weather is going to look like. So Sean, Sean uh, has, has been on the podcast several times and talked about these, uh, these events, and this is a, uh, a great interview that really outline um, what he sees happening. It's a question and answer format, so it's a little bit different than him just up there <clears throat> Given his his talk, so this is a, uh, a very much of an interactive interview that he did with a uh, with the folks over at Real Vision. So, step back and enjoy the uh, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Real Vision Live. For Real Vision, I'm Max Sweethy. I'm joined today by Sean Hackett, president of Hackett Advisors. Sean, thank you so much for coming back. It's really great to be on the program. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the last time we were here, and I'm kind of looking forward to this Q&A format. I think it would be uh, it's going to be really helpful to get the uh, get a more of a clear message about what might be coming here for weather and agriculture and that sort of thing. So thank you so much. Yeah, the last time we had you on, I believe, was uh, early 2020, before all of this uh, COVID madness hit us. And, and yes, it was a different format. You were on Expert View. I did the interview, but I was cut out of the final, and it's very much a presentation. This is going to be a bit right. more interactive, um, and so it, it is good. And, and we put your report out yesterday for our viewers to to look over, and uh, and it, uh, as expected, got. Um, Got some some pushback and some mixed response because what you do you do look at weather and climate and how it affects commodity and agricultural prices in a different way. Um, you know, at Real Vision we don't take a stand, we don't have a view, um, but you've been on before and and your work for both your your clients. I think it'd be interesting to go through who your clients are uh, for for the viewers to understand your perspective. Yeah, we went over this last time in the last interview, and I'd be glad to do it again. Uh, first of all, I want everyone to be clear. I am not doing here speaking to you as a physicist, uh, as a nuclear physics physicist, as a mechanical engineer. Um, I have a degree in chemistry, but that certainly does not qualify me to be a high-end mathematician. What I am here is to let everybody know how we go about predicting one- to two-year weather for our customers. Our customers are producers, ag producers, grain producers, and livestock producers like cattle, hogs, chickens, that sort of thing. And our number one mission, because agriculture has such a um, high degree of correlation to weather patterns, if we're going to be good for price forecasters, if we're going to get have a high batting average, then we have to have some kind of a way to project 
What kind of weather conditions are we heading into? What kind of, you know, are we going to have calm seas or volatile seas? I'm a sailor. I mean, I've sailed all my life. So that, I always love that analogy. Um, and so I don't care what the truth is. I, I, I say this all the time. I don't really care what the truth is. My job is what works um, in predicting whether good enough that we can make a very good outlook for our customers and use that weather as a part of our component for making our price forecast. That's our number one mission is to help producers and uh, end users make those decisions. Um, and all I have done and what I'm trying to do today with you, Max, and, and your listeners is just present to you how we do it. Um, the the long-term cycles we've discovered in our long-standing research um, some of the statistics that we've come up with. And, and also, I want to let everybody know how well we've been predicting the weather using this methodology. I mean, using these cycles, um, it's not like uh, we've been hiding these facts. I mean, we've been out there for the last three or four years making some pretty outlandish recommendations or forecasts on weather that have proven to be correct. So I want everyone to know that you know, models are only as good as they, are, as they have the ability to predict the future. If you have a... Th thesis, if you have a hypothesis and you say, I think these factors are involved in predicting weather and you put the model together and you can't predict the weather, then you need to start from scratch. That's a scientific process. So, so I, I just want to come from that place. And all we're trying to do here, Max, is have everyone appreciate that there, there are these longer term cycles that we've discovered that we're utilizing, that we're synthesizing, uh, that have given us a very good read on one to two year weather patterns and why we think the next one to two years offer some pretty wild, unusual, volatile, and we think uh, sets the stage for, you know, some repricing of many ag markets because of that. Okay. So with that being said, why don't we dive right in? Um, having looked at your report before this, you spend a lot of time looking at the Gleisberg cycle to start things off. And that seems to be the big uh, sort of, I believe it's an, it's a, it's a 170 year cycle, but it, it it matters the sort of like half length of the cycle. So it's it's 80 years or really what you're focused on, 87 years. You talked to us about the Gleisberg cycle, what that is in terms of, uh, you know, what's, what is the cyclical thing that's happening here and then its effect on climate? The general idea, Max, about this whole kind of orbital theory of weather forcing is this. Um, we have magnetic fields on, the, on every planet. We have um, gravimetric uh, fields, uh, forces, we have electrical forces, and then we have spin or torsional forces. And because every planet is spinning around the sun at a different rate, because they're spinning around their axis at a different rate, um, and because they all have different magnetic fields, all these interactions keep changing. That's why climate is never constant. There is no such thing as a stable climate. The stable state of climate is that it's always in change. It's always in flux. And so my job, our job, any weather forecaster's job is to determine What's that change going to look like, and what does that mean? And so the Gleisberg cycle is, a, is one of these orbital cycles that we have found uh, in our work, in our research, that has been associated with a very reliable and, and back-tested going through not only recorded weather, but going back to uh, tree ring analysis, to, I, to uh, ice core analysis. You can get some of this analysis with NASA or with uh, NOAA, there's a lot of work that's done on Asia, a lot of work that's been of, of this kind of information that's in the UK. And this Gleisberg cycle, which is a, essentially an 85 to 90 year cycle, 
has been consistently operating on the Earth's climate uh, very consistently for all these kind of years. And so what this whole concept is, is that the sun has a, a, a total solar output or a solar wind that moves towards the earth. And as these planets are rotating, they either enhance that solar wind or they retard it. You know, they, they hold it back. And so when certain confirmations are in place, we have found that there can be a heating effect or a cooling effect, and it can change the upper level weather patterns um, in the atmosphere and significantly, you know, change our weather. So, so in the, in the last interview, we talked about how uh, this quieting of the sun, this changing of the barycenter, this changing where the sun rotates around the barycenter of the solar system, helps weaken the magnetic field of the sun and allows lots of these cosmic rays to come in and alter the atmosphere causing what's called the meridional jet stream uh where it's going north to south instead of a zonal flow from east to west or from west to east so let's get a, a real world example the um iowa storm that we had in august that flattened the entire no one remembers seeing anything like this this is what was called a bombardic genesis a, a land hurricane meaning it's it started on land and within 24 hours developed into almost a hurricane. They had 120 mile hour winds in certain places in Iowa. This is the nature of, of how this meridional jet stream impacts weather volatility. We also had record heat at West, record cold temperatures in the Midwest back to back because of the fine tuning of this jet stream like this. And then within 24 hours, we had Denver going from 101 degrees to 28 degrees with almost a foot of snow. That's the kind of weather volatility that this new weather regime, this change from the zonal flow to the meridional structure that is caused by this quieting of the sun and these certain orientations of plants, of which the Gleisberg cycle is certainly one of the more powerful ones that, 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 um, uh, that has a, a strong implication for not only U.S. weather, but also you know, weather out in Asia and in Europe. So how does an event like what you're talking about, that Iowa storm, affect an entire planting season and thus the outputs and prices that you can expect for that year? How does something that's really only a few days in length um, have that significant of an effect? And can you talk about what happened in terms of prices during that period of time? Well, I mean, you have to remember that when this storm hit in August, the corn was almost mature. We had very, very tall stocks. And the crop was, you know, we're not quite ready to harvest, but we, we, it was very vulnerable to what's called knockdown or breakage if you have any high winds. And so when this storm came in and, and, and blew 80, 90, 120, it literally flattened almost the entire corn crop in the state of Iowa. The state of Iowa is the number one producing corn state in, the, in our, in, it represents 35% of our corn production. So losing or having uh, a significant amount of corn yield hit by this, impacted by this, and the quality impacted by this was a dramatic event. In fact, if you look at when the corn market made its low in, in early August, it was this event that triggered this move that we've seen corn prices going from you know, that 315, 320 area where we're now pushing 390 to $4. It wasn't all because of that, but that was a huge change in the perception 
of what the corn crop in the U.S. was going to be, and it kind of set the market off into a completely recalibration because it was a storm that no one expected, came out of nowhere, that we have really, quite frankly, I mean, I have producers that have been around for 60 years that never seen anything like it. That's the kind of thing that we are going to see more of, Max, is that kind of extreme weather volatility out of nowhere that takes what seems to be a good-looking production crop, not only here but elsewhere, and just like that, it changes the whole pricing mechanism of the market. Um, and so, so, so that's just a kind of a, a teaser, a microcosm of what this increased weather volatility is going to look like, especially the next two years as this major, major lightning that's developing really, really gets its, its uh, roots in uh, to this amplification of weather volatility that the quieting of the sun, this, this long period of low, low sunspots is, is kicking in. Okay, so I guess we should probably start with what you expect over the next few years and then the, the basis in terms of your research that has you thinking that, um, you know, you said 2021 um, is really going to be a bad year and, and foreshadowing what we can expect, but you have a longer term outlook going out to really like the 2030s as the, the, the trough, the true trough in terms of the, the negative weather effects on, on crop outputs. Uh, let's start, though, with, with near term. What are you seeing near term, and what is it about your research that has you thinking this way? Um, well, we have been predicting a major La Nina uh, starting in late two, 2020 for years. Um, in fact, we talked about it in our interview that we did back in February, I believe it was. Um, and what happens when you're in a grand solar cycle minimum, which is what we're in now, where the sun has a long period of a lower sunspot activity, a lower solar radiation hitting the Earth's atmosphere, the El Nino and La Nina effect gets amplified. So we've been dealing with El Nino and La Nina. So to, to remind everybody what that is, El Nino is a warming of the central East Central sea surface temperatures of the Pacific. Uh, La Nina is a cooling uh, of those same waters uh, in the Pacific. And the difference between warm water in that region and cold water dramatically changes the weather pattern. So, for example, you know, we, we were in an El Nino environment last year. We went on record on our LinkedIn page, I might add, public forum, and we predicted in early February that we were looking for at an historic flooding event in the Midwest, um, significant delayed planting and significant impacts to crop production, something that uh, something we really hadn't seen before in anyone's memory. Um, and as you know, Max, and anyone following what took place, the pictures of floods everywhere, and, and the we still were planting the crop in late June, which is unheard of for doing that. So, so now we're moving into La Nina. So El Nino means, for the U.S. at least, means wetter, kind of, kind of cooler temperatures. But La Nina for the U.S. means hot, dry spring summer. Um, and we predict, predicted that this year would be the first inklings that we were going to be entering this dry cycle. So give an example. Last year, the Palmer Drought Index, which measures the Midwest how much of the acreage is in a sort of drought condition it was only 10% and was at a record low. We reached, we reached 60% of the Midwest reached some form of a drought condition this year from one year to the next, showing that we're developing this uh, La Nina drought pattern. We also had temperatures well above normal, two to three degrees above normal for the months of June, July, and the mid-August, which is also consistent with what a La Nina tends to do. It's a hot, dry cycle for the U.S. Um, so, so, but but it was still sort of pre-La Nina. I mean, we didn't really catch the La Nina 
till just about now, like that's when it's really starting to form. But 2021 into 2022, we're going to have a major La Nina event within a grand solar cycle minimum. So what that says to us is that we're going to have a very late starting winter this year. We don't think winter will start in earnest until maybe the back half of December. We're very short, quick, and sweet, just like last winter. We think it'll be all over by mid-February, and we're going to have a very hot, dry spring and a very hot, dry summer. The big difference, Max, the biggest difference this coming growing cycle from the last one is that it's going to be warmer and dry. We think the Palmer Drought Index is going to go to about 75% uh, in, in, in when we look at the summertime uh, regions for drought in the U.S. But the big difference, and the reason why this crop, even though it was hurt by some of this hot, dry weather, it was hurt by this Iowa storm, but it still is going to be an okay crop, is because we started the year with very good subsoil and moisture in the spring. Meaning if you plant the crop in good subsoil and moisture, you can handle a lot of adverse weather, and you can, if you just get some timely rains, the, the, the crop can kind of get itself through. But we are going to go through a very dry winter after a very dry summer, and we're going to start the spring season with virtually no subsoil moisture. We have not had a low subsoil moisture year in the Midwest in, in 10 years. We had, you have to go back 2010-11, the last time we had what I would consider a, a really deprived subsoil moisture regime starting season. If you start off with nothing in the tank, you only need just mild adverse conditions to cause more diametrically, diametrically significant problems for yields and production. Um, so, so there are a couple of things I wanted to unpack there. So it sounds like this year we had a rainy spring followed by this, this dry weather. And that's why it wasn't fully as bad as what you're predicting next year. Is that, is that a well, correct assumption? Yeah. And we also had a lot of moisture over the winter time. I mean, we, we, we had, we had some, you know, a lot of snowfall, we had, we had some precipitation. What's going to be different this time is we had a dry summer, which depleted that subsoil moisture. We're having a very dry fall. We're going to have a very, very dry winter meaning we're just not going to have any replenishment. All that snow melt, Max, that typically kind of refills the subsoil moisture in most seasons, we're not going to have that kind of snow melt to replenish that. And so we're going to go into a, a spring with a hot, dry La Nina kicking in and, and very, very little subsoil moisture to get the crop going. So establishment's going to be a problem in the beginning. Uh, stands are going to be a problem in the beginning. Um, and just even planting the crop can be a problem in the beginning because if you if you are a farmer and you don't have adequate subsoil moisture, planting seed with no subsoil moisture, the crop it won't even come out of the ground correctly. So so all this is a is a complication of this developing La Nina dry pattern. Um, and so uh, our work you know gives us a very clear read that this is what we're heading into. But there's another element to this, Max, that makes this upcoming uh, year or two even a little more uh, sinister. And that is that as we move into the fall of 2021, into the winter of 21-22, into the spring of 2022, we expect to have an unimaginable, long, cold, historic, record-breaking winter. Um, Couple years back, we predicted that we were going to have one of the worst winters um, in the U.S. since the 1970s. We predicted we'd have these polar vortices coming in place that would shatter records. We talked about these bombogenesis storms that would kick in. We predicted this months in advance using our natural weather cycles and the algorithm that we've created from these cycles. And um, that what's coming up is going to 
be far, far worse than as bad as that winter was. And like, like I said, most people had to go back to the 70s to remember how difficult that was. So what's the problem with this? Why well, is I, that a problem? Yeah, I want to know, though, how do you square that with what you're saying about La Nina bringing these sort of hotter weather? So what is it that is kicking in then that is going to to bring in the cold weather? Because if reading your report, long term, you're looking for colder weather being the surprise that is going to upset lots of, of farmers, planters and speculators. So where where does the cold weather kick in and what's causing it? La Nina is hot spring summer, but a major La Nina is cold winter. So, so the, the, the mechanism of La Nina is that you get the opposite impact during the wintertime. The, the, and the, but the reason why you get net cooling, Max, is because you tend to get a shorter growing season, a hot, shorter summer, and a much longer winter. So we think we could have problems, for example, with early frost in the fall of 21, and additional problems with late spring 2022 frost, meaning a very long season for the hot, for the cold weather that even though we're going to have a really hot dry you know spring summer it's going to be a shortened season so when you put the averages together you're going to have an overall cooling effect for the US so that's the key about this cycle it's not that it's cold all the time and it, it it's it's just that we have extreme weather volatility but we have we're going to have these longer colder winters that are going to proliferate more and more especially when we get into the la nina type patterns, which has historically been when we get those facts. It's, it's, it's part of the upper level dynamics. The dynamics in the winter time is that the polar vortex is much more active. And when it's much more active, you get what's called stratospheric warming. That is, that is the weakening of the polar vortex due to the changing of the jet stream into a meridional pattern. And that brings this cold Arctic air down into the U.S., endlessly over and over again like we saw a couple of years back in the summertime the polar vortex is, is is very weak it's not as much of a factor so that meridional jet stream doesn't really allow for that cool air to be as much of an impact but it does cause significant weather volatility like the iowa storm because you're getting these big clashes of humid dry air masses clashing together and are stationary patterns. So where it's dry, it's dry, it's dry, it's dry. Where it's wet, it's wet, it's wet, it's wet, and it doesn't change. Look at the historic floods in China that we got this year. This is classic La Nina for Asia, for China. This is classic Gleisberg cycle uh, for, uh, for China. Um, and they, you know, they just got into a pattern where they just couldn't get away from the rain over and over and over. You had to go back over a hundred years the last time they had anything like this. So where, where one place it's, you can't buy a drop of rain, another place you can't stop it from falling. That's what this whole weather pattern is about. But it is an overall cooling pattern. As an, in aggregate, it's a cooling pattern because the sea surface temperatures overall will be cooling in this environment and, you, and because of that, you get more of the La Nina type effects. It's the same concept if you put an ice tub in your bathroom and you close the door, the ambient temperature is going to cool down. If you have boiling hot water in your bath and you walk away and you go back in, the ambient temperature is going to warm up. The sea surface temperatures move down or up first, and then the ambient temperature makes its move. And the, what really causes these longer-term uh sea surface temperature cycles, we call them the PDO and the AMO, AMO being the Atlantic sea surface temperature and the PDO being the Pacific sea surface temperature, is how these 
forces, these gravimetric forces and the rotations of the planets impacting sun causing what they call upwelling. I mean, there's all, if you're in Florida in the summertime, it's 88 degrees on top of the ocean. You dive down 20 feet, it's super cold. The key to, to this whole cycle is that you get this, what's called upwelling. The reason why La Nina happens so regularly rhythmically with the solar cycle is because the solar cycle in relation to the plants causes this upwelling force and it brings this cold water up to the surface and cools and then the and the and the and the subs and the uh, surface temperature goes away and you get this cooling effect so uh, i would say that that is the main difference between how you view what is happening in climate with a lot of what people hear in in conventional outlooks is a lot of people are saying the sea surface temperature is related to the air temperature whereas you're saying that the correlation is reversed um as of right now, the the data that I've seen shows sea temperatures rising. So we haven't yet gotten into that period of cooling sea temperatures. When do you expect to see sea temperatures going down? And at what point would you reassess this view if sea temperatures continue to rise? Pavel actually has a question here who says he's curious how you balance your cycle evaluation with the reports that greenhouse gas emissions will increase the temperature of the world in the future. I mean, your view is in conflict with the sort of the, the standard science at this point in time. And so, you know, I, I would have to ask, at what point would you reassess this view? And at what point would you, you know, say, start banging the table and say, yes, I have confirmation. When are sea temperatures going to start going down? Okay. Uh, it's a great question, Max. Um, fantastic question. Um, there's no doubt that, remember, we talked about the scientific process. The science is never settled. And I'm not sitting here that, that say I have all the answers. And of course, you know, maybe there's some things I need to modulate. Um, but what I've been doing, Max, is I've been following what we expected to see, you know, because we've been we've been making these bold weather forecasts starting five years ago, and the signposts have continued to align. We have always said that sea surface temperatures would start to fall after 2020. That's the end of the sea surface temperature warming cycle, which is a 40-year cycle of the PDO and the AMO. It's been going on for hundreds of years. So, for example, I think we talked about this in the February interview, and it was included in that report, but we, we went through a period of sea surface temperatures rising for 40 years, from 1900 to 1940. Remember, the 1930s, still the hottest decade in terms of record high temperatures in the U.S. of any decade since. Um, then we had a period from 1940 to 1980 where sea surface temperatures were on a precipitous decline. Um, and, of course, we got into the 70s, and, of course, it was the global cooling scare. I was five years old. I remember looking on TV. Everyone saying we're going to an ice age. We're all going to freeze to death, starve to death. That, that's what the science and the perception was at that time. And then we started the next sea surface temperature warming cycle from 1980 to 2020. So this is perfect with that orbital forcing, solar cycle force driven sea surface temperature cycle. So what would maybe change my mind if in the next two years we don't see a dramatic decline in overall sea surface temperatures? That would be the first thing that I would have to say. If we don't see significant fall off between now and 2022, then something has changed, that, 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 that the cycles are not repeating, that the, uh, that, that the natural forces that have been caused, uh, that caused great climate fluctuations in the past seem to be no longer working or are not working as well as, you know, they may. And that would dovetail into the idea that, you know, this uh, CO2 global warming is overriding that factor. So that's the first thing. So when would I expect sea surface temperatures to fall? 
Next year, I'd expect to see a decline in sea surface temperatures and, our, and, and, and the year after that. That would be an indication that we are rolling over in this uh, sea surface temperature cycle. The other thing that I'm looking for is that we would expect to see a significant drop in global temperatures in the next two years. Um, if we do not see a significant decline in temperatures over the next two years, then once again, I have to sit back and say, you know, why are these cycles that I've been repeating for hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of years, you know, why are they not having the same impact now as they did before? I'm perfectly happy and willing to accept that I may be wrong here. Um, I'm simply expressing to everyone how we've been going about looking at weather and how we've been getting the weather right for a long, long time, and how we've been using that to make our price forecasting uh, forecasts with a, with, a, with a very high batting average. Um, well, actually, Art has a question about that, who wants to know about forecasts you've got wrong, um, and, and to elaborate on, on some of those. So, you know, not everybody has a, that's a thousand. So no. you, know, you talk about this batting average of yours. Art just wants to know, you know, some examples of times when you've gotten it wrong, how you've adjusted, and how you go about looking back at your analysis to see where the error was. Well, let me explain how we go about making a price forecast. We first of all, we we have a general view of our weather as we're talking about today. We also have developed what we call a smart money insiders capital flows tool that helps measure smart money capital flows that we've defined have tended to be smart, meaning when they're buying to a certain level, uh, that, that tends to give off at some point a buy signal. And when they sell to a certain level, that's historically meant a time to sell. Not perfect, but it, once again, it's kind of something we try to utilize with our weather to come and make a forecast. Where we normally um, come up with, a, with an incorrect forecast is that we've got something wrong with our uh, view on currency. So I'll give you a, a classic example. I believe I was on doing, I did an interview. No, I don't think it was with you, maybe somebody else on, on real vision a couple of years back. And I had a bullish view on coffee. Mm. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, I had a, a, a strong fundamental view and a strong capital flows view. And then the real completely crashed. Um, and the Brazilian real is, it, it has a high correlation to coffee prices because Brazil is, is a dominant producer and more uh, an exporter of coffee prices. So when the real goes down, coffee prices tend to come under a lot of pressure because the price in Brazil is going straight straight up. And so that was a situation where I did not adequately or correctly uh, measure or handle the macro side, the currency side of the equation, and and missed that fundamental being. Because it wasn't just a decline, it was a, it was a, it was a crash. I, that was the predominant um, uh, force in the coffee market during that time. And so we got our forecast incorrect during that time. I would say that's where we, that's where we get our forecast mostly wrong is, is on the – we don't see something on the macro side happening the way that we expect it. Obviously, you know, a virus coming out of nowhere can certainly impact someone's price forecast, you know. Um, and, and so uh, – but – but, but what's interesting is that with smart money, we've been able to develop a way that if the smart money has gotten it wrong, and they do get it wrong, by the way, we can see that they're starting to turn tail and buy back in. And so we've been able, because we made some mistakes earlier in our career in uh, not noticing those things or not taking action when we've seen smart money turn tail and say they've made an incorrect bet. And now when we see those early signs in a market that has been bearish, we're able to quickly 
change our view and tell our farmers, our producers, our, uh, you know, our end users that the situation has now changed and we need to take a, a different track on what the price forecast looks like. Okay, we actually got a question sort of about the, that smart money. So Peter wants to know, can you address how the commitment of traders' speculative positions in, say, grains and oil seeds influence your bullish view in time horizon? They currently sit near record long from a contract perspective, but not dollar notional. Who will be the marginal buyer going forward to drive prices higher? Well, our smart money algorithm uh, factors in uh, part of the smart money is to use the inverse of speculator positions because speculators get long at tops, short at bottoms. Um, the notional idea, the idea that, that you can't look at the actual uh, physical position, it's a record position, doesn't mean anything. What we do is we take the position and we normalize it to open interest so we can compare this decade, the last decade, to the decade before, and it's a, it's apples to apples. Just saying that, you know, Open interest has been growing in corn, for example, for decades. So, so it's of course every couple of years there's a new record position, but it doesn't mean that's necessarily bearish. It's only bearish when it gets high relative to the open interest. But we utilize far more than just speculative positions. But typically, what your what your listener is, is saying is correct. Usually, once the speculators get too bought in, so long as the commercials don't turn tail and buy back, I mean, they stick to their bearish bets because they think they're right. It's harder and harder to get that marginal buyer to come into the marketplace. Usually the only way you get a big move in an ag market when speculators are historically long as a percentage of open interest um, is when the, the commercials are forced to buy back in. So for example, in 2007 and eight, we saw this happen. We saw the commercials get caught underestimating the inflationary forces at work. If you recall back at that time, Max, everyone was, was wild inflationary expectations. The dollar's going to 50, you know, and, and all this money came in and overran the market. And we actually saw commercial operators buy back into that market and cause that final spike trade into the 2008 top just before we had the financial crisis. So, so, so the answer to the question is it's really hard to find that marginal buyer unless the commercials are kicked into covering their bearish bets in this case. Um, okay. and, so commercials and that, are, are bearish at the moment? They're, they're extremely bearish at the moment. That is correct. They're extremely bearish at the moment. So, uh, and then speculators are speculators long. Um, there's been a lot of talk right now about uh, ag agricultural commodities as a great place to play inflation expectations. We've seen record printing, um, fiscal stimulus like we've never seen before, and agricultural commodities are 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 taking up a lot of space in people's views on how to play this, this, um, this potential inflationary environment. Do you, are you seeing that play out in speculator positioning? And do you think we could see a similar thing happening like what you were talking about in 2007, where the commercials have to, have to change their mind? I believe we eventually, Max, will see that. I do not believe we will see that now. We're very, very early in the cycle, Max. I mean, these, this is a 10-year cycle we're talking about at least in agriculture, meaning, you know, we're going to be you know, looking at a, an overall bullish environment. Of course, there's ups and downs. Nothing's a straight line. Um, but we're just getting started. It's rare to get a blowout of the commercials at the beginning of a ag inflation cycle. Usually they'll get blown out near the end of a seven, eight, nine, 10, 15 year cycle, you know, that caused the, the spike trade at the top. I mean, that's more typically what happens. My belief is that it won't be the, an inflationary shock that gets them to 
turn tail and buy in to cause that trade. I believe they just misjudged the weather that's coming. We, we believe that the weather is going to be so anomalous and so unprecedented that that's going to be what the rogue wave that they don't see coming. I think everyone's pretty, you know, we're all looking at this trillions of government spending and trillions of money printing. I mean, I don't think any commercial operator is not noticing what's going on with our monetary situation. I think they're fully aware of the potential inflationary implications that may uh, occur from that. But I don't believe that many of them are really aware of this significant weather pattern change that started three or four years ago and it's going to get far, far more impactful because we haven't seen it for 200 years. The biggest problem with this cycle, Max, is that because it's, it's a 200-year cycle that we go into these, that no one's around the last time we had this cycle to tell you about it. You have to go and read books and look at you know, uh, you know, records and, and, and you gotta, you gotta kind of do your own. Hopefully anybody, yeah. Anybody who hasn't read the report, you see there's, you know, newspaper clippings from, uh, from hundreds of years ago that you have to go back through to find some of this, some of this data. Fortunately, we, we, we have gotten good data from ice core samples, which are not perfect. Uh, from tree ring analysis, which is not perfect. We didn't have that 20 years ago, but we have it today. And it kind of gives you a, a, it allows you to go further out than just looking at these, you know, news clip articles and some historical documents, you can actually get a, you know, get a, a pretty good read on what happened during the Maunder minimum in the 1600s during that grand solar cycle minimum. What happened to the Dalton minimum during the late 1700s, early 1800s grand solar cycle minimum? You know, what happened to the spore minimum before the Maunder minimum? I mean, these, these grand solar cycles are nothing new. It's just that it's always 200 years after the last one, and no one's around to really, oh, it's, it was so far ago, it, that, can't, that can't happen now. You know, uh, in, in 1815, we had the year in, in the U.S., we had, it's called the year without a summer. I think we talked about this in February, yeah, yeah. where we actually had a freeze. We had below freezing temperatures in Iowa in June. And so, well, you know, never, that can never happen now. Well, maybe it won't happen, but I would argue that, we have seen so many things that we thought could not happen in the last 10 years happen that I would be very careful not to say that certain weather extremes that have not happened in a while won't happen again. Weather and climate is extraordinarily statistical and it's extraordinarily cyclical um, because the forces that are operating um, are cyclical and are statistical and have been interacting with our planet's climate and atmosphere for a very, very long time. Um, and so, you know, that's really, you know, why we've been warning uh, our farmers um, and our end users in our reports for years about warning about this period coming up um, and, and especially the next 10 years, Max. And the reason I'm worried about the next 10 years is because once prices go up for a while and they stay up for a while and, and the money flows into the industry, we will find a way to handle even this extreme weather. I mean, the technology always solves problems if there's the economic incentive to do so. So even though the 2030s, I believe, will be even, uh, even a worse decade weather-wise than, the two, than 2020 to 2030, the, pri the, the greatest price impact will be this next decade because we're not prepared for it. We don't have the systems in place. We don't have the All assets in place. We don't have Back the technology failed. in place. We're not ready for handling this. And so it's a shock. And we have to handle the shock crisis, and then we can better handle the 2030s and beyond, even though it's still going to be nasty. We'll get our hands around the problem. So the next 10 years is really where the big um, uh, 
phase transition, we call it, in our belief is about to happen. And this is consistent with hundreds and thousands of years of looking at ag markets is they have this shock. And then even though the fundamentals that drove that shock are still there, technology catches up and we figure out a better mousetrap, you know? Okay. So I, I would like to get, you know, we've been talking sort of big picture here. I would like to get a little bit of clarity on your short-term outlook for commodity prices. It sounds like your your medium to long-term outlook is higher prices, but in the short term, what are you seeing, you know, in, in the coming year or two? Well, sh- short-term in commodities, uh, it's a little different than stocks made, but short-term in commodities is three months. Okay. okay. Um, a long-term in commodities is 12 to 18 months. I mean, that that's, that it, it, when you're dealing with farmers and uh, you know making cash sales and injuries of buying feed and, and the commodity cycles, I mean, I just want to make sure everyone understands when we're talking about short and long term. Short term is next three months. Long term is kind of you know twelve eighteen months. So so the short term we're actually kind of bearish right now. We've been recommending our farmers make some cash sales. We've had a significant run up on some of this adverse weather that we talked about in February that was likely to take place. We actually talked about a counter-seasonal rally we expected to have this year in the grain markets, confounding uh, everybody, which is exactly what happened. Um, but we've, we've run fast, we've run hard, and we don't yet see the right fundamental and uh, monetary conditions coming in play just yet for uh, this move to to. to, to yeah, we don't think we're at that stage yet, Max. We think you know, our smart money algorithm is flashing some pretty bearish signals right now that we haven't seen really since January before the pandemic hit. So, so we're cautious short term. Um, and it's, by the way, it's okay to have a, a, a cautious short term uh, view, but have a bullish longer term view. I mean, that's the nature of the beast. No market's just going to go straight up. It's ups and downs. And you want to make sure that you keep your your sights on those opportunities when they come, when the next low comes and the next opportunity is to buy into this longer-term trend. Once we get further along, as I said, spring onward is when I feel the conditions are going to be in place for this trend to really, really um, proliferate, to really go that we could enter something more impactful than a two- to three-month ra- two to three month rally like we've seen since the August lows. Uh, we see that all the time. Uh, but I think from spring on, we could see a you know one to two year rally with very very few corrections along the way, moving into some kind of a crescendo top. You know that prices the mar- that prices are high for a little while. So so I guess I'm I'm cautious right now. We don't believe that this is an ideal time to be looking at positioning in this asset class at this moment in time. But we are you know really looking for that next setback when our signals uh, you know kind of kick in so that we can buy into this longer term trend. Okay, so you wouldn't be fading this over bullish optimism in the short term. You're really say, suggesting people sit tight and wait for um, wait for a bottom starting next year, and that's when you would want to get bullish. When you have these sort of long term views, do you do you find yourself recommending to go against that view, or or do you generally say just you know sit tight, don't fade the long term view, and wait for your entry that matches this longer term perspective? Well, remember, when I'm dealing with producers who have corn to sell, soybeans to sell, wheat to sell, cotton to sell, they have to sell, Max. Yeah. So they, when I say make cash sales, you know, it's time to make cash sales. I mean, I don't say, you know, just just you know, hang out and sell it, you know, whenever you want. I mean, there's a time for them to, to, to monetize that supply, okay? Um, and likewise, with the livestock producers, a time to buy. But from a more what I call a trader perspective, more of a speculative perspective, um, we don't want to 
we don't want to trade against the long-term bullish view. Meaning, if if we like we're bearish now, we would simply trim our exposure. Uh, you know, we wouldn't you know, be looking to go you know short ag stocks or something like that. You know, we would just say, look, time to take some some chips off the table. Time to get a little more conservative. Time to you know get some powder dry for the next opportunity to play the long-term trend. We don't go against the long-term trend from an investment perspective. We just do that when it, when it deals with our farmers because they have to sell. But before we do that, uh, you talked about Alert the three from. factors no that really fit for in. You have the weather, days. you have the uh, smart money, and then you also have currencies and the macro. In the end of your report, you do get into currencies and macro and how uh, the dollar can be both a headwind and a tailwind. Uh, you, you make the case that we are potentially entering into a period where the dollar will be a tailwind for commodity prices. Can you talk a little bit about that view? And then to all the viewers, we'll get into those questions after we touch on the dollar. You know, once again, you know, being being uh, statistically and cycle oriented, uh, the U.S. dollars had a very uh, reliable, um, you know, kind of a, a, an eight to 10 year cycle in terms of its ups and downs and ups and downs. And we've utilized that overall long term picture to our benefit. That cycle actually topped out in 2017. So 2017 was was when the cycle said that the U.S. dollar should make a top. It doesn't mean it has to go crashing and burning the next year after, but it says that we should start some kind of a topping process and that the next major low point for the dollar would be eight years hence. So 2025, 2026, 2024, and that, and that area would be where the cycles would suggest the next you know low for the dollar might kick in. And of course, that period from now to there, um, yeah, we've seen the U.S. dollar weaken considerably here um, over the last three months, and 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 it's amazing that commodities have really catched a bid. Gold, silver catching a bid. Obviously, a lot of the grain markets catching a bid. We're seeing a lot of these inflationary expectations starting to creep in because the dollar, after ten years of being in a bearish mode, is starting to provide some of that currency translation inflation effect. Um, and so we're so that is a is a long term cycle that happens to mesh with our weather cycle. That happens to mesh with, you know, our concept uh, that uh, uh, you know that this um, that the misall not the misallocation that the low allocation of global capital into this asset class is going to start to shift. So, okay, all right, thank you for that, and let's just get into some of these questions. So, um, Sadipto wants to know he went through your report in detail. Um, and he would like to know how will major La Nina cycle starting 2021-22 will impact various geographies? Does it mean that countries closer to the equator will be more preferred due to cooler weather? Will it help to flourish agriculture in these countries? Um, I'd just like to expand to how you think about geographies in, in, your, um, in your work, but also touching directly on Sadipto's question. Uh, in, in a grand solar cycle weather pattern, Max, um, the northern hemisphere has a much greater problem than does the southern hemisphere, for example, because the land mass is so much closer to the polar vortex that when you get these stratospheric warming events and you get this meridional jet stream and the diving down of the of the cold air into the uh, into the land masses, it impacts a huge swath of high yielding ag ground across the whole northern hemisphere. So the northern hemisphere is, is significantly impacted. The further south you go the less the impact is. Now, now, South America is different. It's so much further away from the southern polar vortex that it's a lot harder for 
Strasburg warming down there to impact ag ground as much as it does in the Northeast. The biggest risk for the Southern, for the southern Hemisphere would be Argentina ground um, because it's the closest, and, and I would say that's the biggest high-yielding ground that would be most impacted by this weather pattern change, whereas Brazil, for example, would be, it doesn't mean Brazil won't have bad weather, but, but they'll have a much better go of it than Argentina or certainly the Northern Hemisphere. So yeah, closer to the, to the, to the equator, the better you are. All right, we, we have this, this dichotomy between ag farmland values, where we think the Northern tier land values could crash because of the inability to produce uh, you know, pr produce on it, whereas the Southern uh, farmland could enter some kind of a bubble because it's still able to produce you know, decent yields while prices are very, very high. And so its productive value goes to the roof. So we think there could be a big split between the haves and the have-nots between Northern farmland and Southern farmland and Brazil farmland and Argentine farmland. Um, in, in reference to the La Nina question, here, you know, uh, we look for you know, what areas are most impacted by La Nina. Russia, Ukraine, and U.S. have the greatest correlation with La Nina's threat history. Those are the two areas that have, tend, have tended to have the biggest weather impacts. Um, and so right now we're dealing with the worst drought in Russia in 50 years during their winter wheat planting season. Uh, classic La Nina, amplified grand solar cycle minimum. The U.S., we've already talked about how we've been developing this hotter, drier pattern um, that, that, that actually you know, caused some, some extreme heat and dryness in certain areas. So the, you know, these two areas are really where one wants to focus their attention when we come into the spring. Because both countries, we believe, based upon an amplified La Nina, is going to go into the spring with no subsoil moisture and an escalating drought in both countries. The last time we had this kind of a setup, Max, was... 10, 11, 12. That's the last time that we had a major La Nina during a trough in the solar cycle. And even then, with that, we, were, we, were, we, we weren't even getting started with the grand solar back then, but we were, we were preamble. But we still had the Russian drought in 2010-11 that cut the wheat, winter wheat crop in half. And we had the 2012 drought in the U.S. That was one of the worst droughts that we'd had, you know, really since the 1930s, that caused corn prices to go up to $8 a bushel during that particular year. Um, and that's a, and, and that was not, uh, that is nowhere near as extreme of what we believe is coming in this new weather regime. Because once again, that was pre-grand solar cycle. This is now full-blown grand solar cycle, amplified La Nina, amplified El Nino. Remember, the El Nino was record-setting floods. We would expect to see similar uh, attributes to this. And remember, the Gleisberg cycle, which predicted that China would have these historic floods based on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of correlation with the Gleisberg cycle, suggests that, we'll, that, that we should be looking at a historic drought, one in 100 year drought in the U.S. three to four years later. That's the, that's the correlation between the floods in, flo in, uh, in China and U.S. drought in this Gleisberg cycle. So once again, things keep adding up all these puzzle pieces are fitting in this overall cyclical picture. And that's what we like to do, Max. We like to find as many variant, different ways of coming at something and have them all say similar things. It gets us increased confidence that what we're, what we're proposing, what we're projecting is highly likely going to happen. And it gives us confidence to make strong recommendations to our customers. So thinking then about uh, specific prices for crops, uh, it sounds like you would see 
um, you know, greater impact on prices moving up in in crops that are are you know, winter wheat, like in Russia, corn that which is produced in the U.S., but maybe not as big of an effect on sugar, coffee, some of these more equatorial uh, crops. That doesn't mean that they won't experience uh, the same sort of uptrend that, that you're expecting across the broader ag space, but it won't be as great as these more northern-focused um, commodities. Undoubtedly, um, you know, the, the grain markets are at the epicenter, typically, of La Nina price impact. Um, without question. Um, we would, um, and we talked about this in our February interview, Max, I, I, I would you know, uh, highlight uh, that one thing that has not happened in a very, 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 I have to go back to 1994, is the last time we had a frost in Brazil during uh, the coffee uh, season, uh, during the winter time. And um, we believe that uh, it's very likely that we are going to experience frost in Brazil coffee um, and get back into a more frost-ridden uh, pattern. I mean, it used to be common that you get a frost every three or four years there. I mean, it was it was something that just everyone just knew you, just, you got them, and the price did all kinds of weird things because of the, the dramatic impacts to crops there. Um, but we would kind of, you know, uh, keep that as, as, as something different than the grains that could have a significant impact because of the general... Uh, marinal jet stream behavior of the southern polar vortex, there's likely going to be strong enough stratospheric warming down there that you can get a strong enough push. Remember, you don't need frost in Brazil for days to cause a problem. You need four hours, and, it, and the deed is done. Four-hour okay. frost, and it's done. Um, the other market that we talked about in um, uh, in, in, the, in the February interview that, that's worth mentioning is, is and, and we, we, we follow this market because our customers use natural gas and propane a lot in, their, in running their farms and, uh, you know, heat, drying down corn and doing all the things that they do. Um, the natural gas market, clearly, if we're even 50% correct about what this winter of, tw of, the of the fall of 21 to the spring of 22, that winter is going to look like, if we're halfway, even half right about that, the implications for now, natural gas prices could be, you know, quite uh, wild. Think of it. Think of a couple of years back when we had that really rough winter here in the U.S. and we hit over six dollars uh, during a time of abundant production, abundant, uh, you know, supplies going into that, and we still got our got the, got the natural gas market at moving over six, six and a half. Now we have production under pressure. Because prices have been low for too long, we have the virus that caused all kinds of issues and lack of investment, and um, and now we have a much stronger demand base uh, because of LNG going out uh, for export, and uh, so you know I just I just thinking out loud, you know that could be a pretty wild you know situation for natural gas prices with to have that kind of a long winter, you know, because you always you you draw down you use far far more natural gas trying to heat the heat people, you know, warm people than you do trying to cool them down in a, in a hot summer. Uh, it's, it's just, it's an order of magnitude, more demand for, you know, winter, winter cold and heating demand. So, so we think that, you know, uh, you know, we're not energy experts. You know, I know you have people on, on, on real vision that are just crack, fantastic, you know, energy experts. And I, and I, and, and I would defer to them on exactly, you know, what, what, you know, equities might be most prudent for that sort of thing, but I, I think that's an interesting concept of, you know, what natural gas prices could do 
um, during this extremely nasty winter that we're projecting and what that could mean for certain leveraged uh, natural gas equities, you know, that have a, a really high correlation to price and, you know, like a gold stock, you know, the, the price was up and, and immediately fought, drops to the bottom line if, given that they have a, a kind of fixed cost structure. So, so I just kind of throw that out there. Yeah, yeah, that dovetails very well into a question we got from Raphael, who read the report. He has two questions. Um, one would be, you know, what countries will be less impacted by this cooling cycle and allow you to enjoy reasonable weather? And two, I think this is the question that really relates to your last part, is what is the best way to express this view in the market? You've talked about real estate prices. You've talked about the actual commodity prices, and then as well, the equities. When you are looking at a sort of longer-term view like this, how do you go about expressing it in a trade? The problem with ETFs, Max, and uh, you have to be short-term oriented because the ETFs always lose value due to eating the carry. The carry is that you have higher prices in deferred corn, for example, versus the, the nearby to pay for storage, to pay for a farmer to keep his corn on the farm and not sell it. And so every time you roll a contract out, if even if the corn market's flat, you eat that and you eat that and you eat that. And so a flat corn market means that ETF is going to continue to fall. So those are very poor long-term vehicles. Those are utilized short-term. I think, I think, you know, we got something going. I'm going to you know, do it right now. So for a long-term investment, those are not great ideas um, to play that. We prefer to look at equities. Um, our favorite idea, and, and it kind of dovetails into what we talked about this um, farmland uh, disparity between North Central, you know, the, we, Brazil, we believe, is going to have the best go of it. We think they're going to have the best consistent production. We believe overall they're going to be the least impacted by all, all this weather volatility. Not that they won't be impacted. I mean, we think that the value of Brazilian farmland will reach, is, will, will be viewed by many as the premium, some of the premium ground in the world as this uh, grand solar cycle weather volatility cooling trend reaches its apex. Um, and so our favorite way to, uh, to play that is with a company called Brazil Agro. It's on the New York Stock Exchange. It's Larry Nancy David. Um, and we think that's a good, great long-term way to benefit from this trend. You kind of, you know, it's kind of, you put it in your drawer and you forget about it for five years. And, 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 and we, we just see them winning so, so many different ways, not only from the farmland values going a lot higher, but obviously they'll be, produ they'll be able to produce good production when prices are a whole lot higher and, and like a like a natural gas stock if the natural gas price goes up or like a gold stock when gold price goes up you know the money just flows straight to the bottom line for a company like that um so we we think that's a really interesting longer term uh idea to kind of play this longer term trend you know that, that, that that's probably our favorite uh overall way to do it is to play uh more what we call equatorial farmland values, equatorial farmland production. Are there any uh, like farmland REITs that specialize in country-specific farmland? Well, I mean, Gladstone uh, Farmland has a good ETF here in the U.S. By the way, most of their ground is in southern ground. Now, they're not doing corn, soybeans, and wheat. Okay, uh, another outfit, Farmland Partners, does more like the grains. Uh, they do more things like uh, cabbage and blueberries and strawberries and almonds and kind of what we call longer duration. But their ground is in you know Southern California, you know in Florida, in in the, in the Southern swath where you know they're the place you want to be. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's a REIT, you know they got to throw off you know the 
their capital and provide dividend growth and that sort of thing. And so it's a, it's a much more conservative investment versus something like uh, Brazil Agro would be. Uh, but certainly, they all they do is they buy the ground, Max, and they rent out to a, a farmer who knows what he's doing. And the farmer pays rent to um, Gladstone. And then there's a inflation that, you know, every year you add inflation and the rent goes up. Um, and, and in some of these contracts, they actually can participate in a little of the VIG, meaning you can, you can, they can, the Gladstone will get a little bit of the production. So if prices are high, you know, they could take that supply and, and make a little extra return on it than just the rental payment from the farmer. You know what I'm saying? So okay. it's a, it's a very different business model. So it's a farming real uh, to, to rent versus a Brazil agro that's managing the farms themselves, growing it themselves, planting it themselves, selling it themselves. But both have merit depending on your risk profile. Uh, I think both have a lot of merit, and both are in the right regions for farm ground from our historical perspective of where, you know, weather should be least bad it, without using, without saying it more eloquently than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about, what about say then like shorting a Canadian farmland REIT? Uh, would that be something, you know, you talked about the pr- prices going down. Is that something you're examining at all? Uh, you know, I, I have to say that we've never been ones for shorting stuff. You know, it's just not our... Yeah, it's yeah. not our. It, it's my view. In order, you know, you have some wonderful, wonderful short sellers that come on your program, and one who's actually a, short farmland partners. So uh, I'll throw that one out there. Well, 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 they're in the wrong area, so I think he's onto something. Yeah. <laughs> plus, plus, they messed up their. They're not operating correctly, but well, that, that's but what his, that's what his thesis is really based off of accounting. Um, it's not a value short. It's it's very. And if you look, if you look at the performance of Gladstone for Central Max, and you look at the performance of that one, I mean, Gladstone, it, the, the relative return has been, you know, Gladstone has just done fantastic versus, you know, the, the farmland partners has done horribly, horrible, horrible, uh, you know. But, but I guess what I'm getting at, you know, there's a certain mind that you need to have to be a short seller. I don't have that mind. I don't have that. I like to buy stuff. You yeah. know, I, I'm a buy. I, you know, of course, I'll tell my farmers to cash sell grain because that's my job. It's what I'm here to do. It's my so they pay me to do. But I'm just not a guy that's going to go short a stock. I'd rather just be long the other side of the trade and do it that way. I that, that's just my way. I'm wired. If I went to short something, I'd be scared out of it next week, and it wouldn't work for me. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we got we got two questions I want to get through um, before the end. Here we're coming down to the end. Do you have a few minutes? Sure. Absolutely. Oh. All right. So uh, both of these questions are a bit more geography specific. So Sadipto, who got a few questions in earlier, says we're seeing huge locust attacks across India, Pakistan, and Africa. How um, locusts are destroying crops in these regions? Is there any relationship between you know locusts and and I'll add just similar pests um, to your research and specifically to weather volatility? Uh, the fall armyworm, for example, is another insect that has been uh, proliferating in Asia, especially in China, is now in every single corn-growing region in, in, in China and is causing huge problems there. But, of course, the desert locust, which has been the big issue with Africa, the big issue that's moved into the Middle East and even moved into India, they're, they're, when you think about what makes desert locusts really proliferate, it's having uh, very, very wet conditions. La Nina conditions, like we're dealing with now, um, and like we're expected to continue to deal with more often, is wet Asia. It's wet for Asia. It's wet for India. It's wet for China. It's wet. So excessively wet conditions is a breeding ground for insect 
proliferation for insects because desert locusts they lay these eggs they, that's why they call them swarms by the way you have one swarm and they lay like double the amount of eggs so the next swarm is twice the size and then they double the amount of eggs until finally the cycle ends because you know it gets too dry and they, and they, and they no longer can do it so there, there is a correlation to insect infestations out in asia and moving into these grand solar cycle minimum periods because it does mean excessively wet conditions generally speaking for asia out that way versus what they're accustomed to what they're accustomed to um and 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 and, and we have seen you know like i said we saw an, an unusually wet period for india an unusually wet period for the middle east during this past winter which fostered and bred into this historic desert locust uh, infestation that we really haven't seen the likes of in at least 80 years. It's been that long. So. Okay. Willem has a question about Australia. Um, will uh, What impact will these changes on weather patterns have on Australian farmland, and will Australia have more droughts? Australia tends to have droughts when we have El Nino. So we had El Nino last year, and we had a historic drought in uh, in Australia and, and yeah. the fires, you know, I mean, and by the way, that is not uncommon to have fires and drought in Australia. I mean, th that country go back any period of hundreds to, I mean, they had that, but this was very severe. I mean, this was a, an amplification of the normal pattern that so that, but, and, and they've had, you know, they had that terrible drought in the, uh, you know, t 10 years ago, you know, where they had a four or five year drought. It was horrific, but that's El Nino driven. La Nina, <clears throat> saves them. La Nina is a more wet pattern for them. The good news for Australia is that because we're moving into a grand solar cycle minimum weather volatility pattern, La Ninas are more prevalent. It doesn't mean we don't have La Ninas. We do, but we have more longer and more frequent La Ninas during this cycle than in a cycle. So the good news is that they're going to have a better go of it. They're going to have you know, more rainfall than they're accustomed to. They're going to have much better crops than they've been accustomed to. So, so we talked about Brazil being you know, kind of in a good place. I think Australia is also another area that after taking it on the chin for 10 or 15 years where they've been the poster child for how badly can you beat up their ag sector, you know, they actually could be a darling here over the next 10 years to 15 years because they're going to get rains and better weather that many are not, and they're going to have very good production and very high prices to sell into and revive you know, that 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 historically rich you know, ag uh, sector that they've had for a very long time. So I'm very optimistic that that's a good place to look uh, to, for ag investments, for, for farm ground appreciation, for you know, farmland stocks, ag stocks. And I think that's a, that's a good area uh, to, be, to be looking for investment opportunities. All right. Well, Sean, I think that's the last question we're going to get to. Uh, I want to give you the opportunity to to just summarize everything that we've gone through today um, and, and sort of put, put a bow on it for, for the viewers at home. Sure. <clears throat> uh, I, I would just want to finish it this way. Um, my belief, our belief, uh, and our number one mission is to get the forecast right. Um, and I don't come here trying to convince you of anything. I'm just here telling you how we go about making one or two year weather forecasts and how we've been very, very right uh, with some spectacular forecasts in the last five years using this methodology that we discussed somewhat today. Um, and I would ask everyone to do some research on their own. Look into this, these, these cycles. Look into uh, this rich data and history that's out there. Don't take my word for it. Go do some research on it, but I don't come here trying to make you believe in it or, or trying to, 
you know, create some kind of a, you know, grandiose thing. So, so you, you, you hire me for your services. I hear, because we have done a lot of research. We've done a lot of work. We've been getting it right. And we think we are right about this weather pattern. The signposts that we've been seeing that we expected to see have been verifying and validating. And we believe that if you get your hands around this concept and see it for yourself and see it, uh, being real for yourself and you can follow these signposts. I'm giving a, I give a really clear roadmap for the next two years. Sean's right. Sean's wrong. Sean's right. Sean's wrong. Sean's right. You know, I mean, so I have a very clear pathway to whether what I'm talking about here is, you know, if I'm onto something or I had a lucky five-year streak. Okay. Um, and, and I would keep an open mind. It is different. Um, it is not conventional. Um, and it, and it, and it is, it is not something that is readily discussed or talked about yet. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of peer reviewed papers on the such a matter going back hundreds of years to some of the brightest minds that have ever been born on this earth that go over these cycles and talk about how they work, why they work and, and, and how they have been operating in our climate for a very long time. So do I have all the answers? No. Uh, do I have some errors in some of my analysis here? Am I seeing it all correctly? I'm sure I'm, I've made some errors. That's the scientific process. But I think I'm right enough that the impact to ag prices, the impact to ag investments, and the impact to humanity is uh, important enough that I think this is a message that for research, food for thought. And I hope that your listeners take that uh, invitation and do their own work and decide for themselves whether Sean is, you know, makes sense or Sean is just, you know, we don't see it his way. And I'm fine with either way. I don't need validation. I'm just here to, to present what I think is a compelling case for why a 10-year ag bear market is about to enter some of the best years of, you know, some of the best um, price action we've seen in a very, very long time. And I think that is a good way to end it. All right, Sean, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, to everybody who hasn't checked out the report, who is watching today, it's available uh, on Real Vision for, for all Plus and Pro members. Sean, thanks again. Thanks, Max. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much. And you have a wonderful, wonderful day. And keep up the good work for Real Vision. You guys are really doing some great work. So, Thanks, Sean. Find a scene.